Hello, my name is Jody Leibot, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing author Teresa Julian. We're going to be talking about the children's novel Ramona the Pest by Beverly Cleary, uh, which I believe is the second Beverly Cleary novel I've uh, had a podcast about. Uh, Beverly Cleary, by the way, is 103 years old and still very much with us. Now, I usually start off the podcast with a poem, uh, but this time I'm going to do something a little bit different, um, although a poem will be involved at some point. A short while back, I did an interview with uh, Pam Allen, uh, who's a person who helped start the World Read Aloud Day, and that's going to be on February 5th this year. World Read Aloud Day, if you don't know, is a day to share the pleasure of reading aloud uh, with other people, as well as bringing attention to the idea of literacy as a basic human right. Uh, so I thought in celebration of that, I'd do my own little part by reading aloud a short section from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, which of course is the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I'm going to be reading the, the middle part of chapter four. Uh, uh, that's where Alice meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And at this point in the chapter, Alice has been dancing uh, with the strange duo uh, for a little bit, and the conversation turns suddenly to poetry. And what follows from there is one of my favorite poems, uh, The Walrus and the Carpenter. Uh, but I thought rather than just reading that poem, I'd also read the bits of conversation around it as well. So here we go. Then they let go of Alice's hands and stood looking at her for a minute. There was a rather awkward pause, as Alice didn't know how to begin a conversation with people she had just been dancing with. It would never do to say, How do you do now? she said to herself. We seem to have got beyond that somehow. I hope you're not much tired, she said at last. No how, and thank you very much for asking, said Tweedledum. So much obliged, added, added Tweedledee. You like poetry? Yes, pretty well, some poetry. Alice said doubtfully. Would you tell me which road leads out of the wood? What shall I repeat to her, said Tweedledee, looking round at Tweedledum with great solemn eyes and not noticing Alice's question. The walrus and the carpenter is the longest, Tweedledum replied, giving his brother an affectionate hug. Tweedledee began instantly. Here Alice ventured to interrupt him. If it's very long, she said as politely as she could, would you please tell me first which road... Tweedledee smiled gently and began again. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd, because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily, because she thought the sun had no business to be there, after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be, the sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud, because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead, there were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. 
Oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk, along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four. And thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, and hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low. And all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot, and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath, and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter, they thanked him much for that. A loaf of bread, the walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar, besides, are very good indeed. Now if you're ready, oysters, dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are so very nice. The carpenter said nothing, but cut another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick. After we brought them out so far and made them trot so quick, the carpenter said nothing but the butter's spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer, there came none. And this was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one. I liked the walrus the best, said Alice, because you see he was a little sorry for the poor oysters. He ate more than the carpenter, though, said Tweedledee. You see, he held his handkerchief in front, so that the carpenter couldn't count how many he took, contrarywise. That was mean, Alice said indignantly. Then I liked the carpenter best, if he didn't eat so many as the walrus. But he ate as many as he could get, said Tweedledum. This was a puzzler. After a pause, Alice began. Well, they were both very unpleasant characters. My guest today is Teresa Julian, author of the recently released nonfiction book for kids, The Joke Machine. You can find Teresa's website at www.teresajulian.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Teresa. Thank you for inviting me. As I mentioned, you've got this uh, new book out called The Joke Machine, which is a, a nonfiction uh, book to help kids. Can you talk a little bit about what it is, what this book is for? Uh, so it's a nonfiction book that teaches children ages 8 to 12 how to be funny. It has lots of examples, exercises, and of course, jokes. But in my opinion, it's really a creative writing tool disguised as a joke book. What it does is it uses the basic tenets of English that kids are 
are already learning in school, such as how to compare and contrast, exaggeration, literalness, specifics, etc. And in addition to the mechanics of how to create a joke, it also teaches kids something more important, in my opinion, because the key to creating a funny line is reaching past the plain vanilla and saying something in a more creative, colorful, and unexpected way. And uh, what inspired you to write this book? Where did you get the idea of um, using jokes as a creative writing tool? Well, it started because I was writing fiction, and I really wanted my fiction to be funnier. I was writing for ages 8 to 12, and I, you know, I wasn't meeting with the success I wanted to with my fiction. And I thought, you know, if I could be funnier, I think my fiction would sell better. And so I started researching humor and I started really researching humor. And um, I love words. And I started collecting funny quotes and I started putting them into categories of what made each one funny, just trying to learn it myself. And I just came up with lots of different categories, like, you know, some use comparisons, some use exaggeration, understatement, specifics, etc. And then I just started developing my own philosophy. And the funny thing is the the book that I sold was the nonfiction book on how to be funny. And I'm still trying to market my fiction. But is there a particular part of the book that you could share with us? Sure. So one of the techniques in the book is using specifics to punch up an ordinary sentence into something funnier. So I'm going to start with this ordinary sentence. And it's, I can't believe I spilled food on my shirt. So, and I'm going to add specifics to make the sentence more descriptive, interesting, engaging, and funny. So the same sentence. Instead of, I spilled food on my shirt, I look like a vat of chili exploded on me. I look like a dish of spaghetti died on me. I look like I fell into that bucket of gray water the custodian uses to wash the cafeteria floor. I look like a bunch of two-year-olds had a Play-Doh party on my shirt. I look like a caveman who washes his clothes in a muddy river and beats them with a rock. So it's just, you know, a way to teach children to use specifics to um, get that more creative sentence and hopefully a laugh. Now, uh, obviously, this is uh, geared towards kids. Do you think it might also be of value for um, both older kids and even adults uh, to glean some um, creative writing tips from this? I definitely think so. I mean, it's written very simply for ages 8 to 12, but I, I think that the techniques are just universal, and anyone could use them. You know, an adult could use comparing something ordinary to something outrageous to, to create a laugh, or contrasting two things that don't belong together. They're very, very simple principles that really any age could use. And I do have to ask, do you have your own favorite joke? Um... I, I let me think. I <laughs> yes, I do. Where do burgers go to dance? I do not know. Where do burgers go to dance? The meatball. The meatball. Very good. I don't know. Good. It's, it's simple. It's a simple pun, but I like it. And it, it's one. It's one kids would like. It's it's just a kid joke. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Or kid joke, or there's a fine line between kid jokes and dad jokes. Would be the sort of joke I would tell. Uh, now, the book you, you picked as one of your uh, favorite kids' books uh, is uh, Ramona the Pest, 
which was written by Beverly Clearly, and it was first published in 1968. It was actually the second book um, to feature Ramona, but the first one that uh, featured her as a main character. Uh, for readers who might not have had the chance yet to uh, read Ramona the Pest, can you talk a little bit of uh, what it's about? Sure. Um, it's about a very spunky girl named Ramona who's starting her first day at kindergarten. She's absolutely thrilled to be, you know, with the bigger children starting school. And the story is all about the things Ramona misinterprets and misunderstands during her first few months of kindergarten, which are many. Um, and she's, uh, what I love most about this book is she is just such a wonderful character. Um, she just has so much spirit. She's so sincere and sweet and honest, but just wild enthusiasm that gets her into trouble, all kinds of crazy trouble. And um, you you just love her so much that you just worry about her. You know, like you could see her walking down the path, getting into one problem after another. And, and it just it's just such an engaging story. As you said, Ramona, uh, throughout the book, she gets into all sorts of different kinds of trouble, uh, things that she... Well, you would think she would see coming, but uh, for whatever reason, she manages to get in these situations. Did you have a particular favorite moment of the of a scrape Ramona just suddenly finds herself into and can't quite find a way out of? Yes. So it, it's at the book's climax where, um, you know, she's she's done many things throughout the book. And the last thing she does, well, throughout the book, she admires there's one girl in the class named Susan who has boing, boing curls. And Ramona is dying to pull those curls and watch them spring back up. And she does a couple of times. And, and Susan gets upset and keeps saying, don't touch my hair. Don't touch my hair. And there's one day toward the end of the book where Ramona just can't resist another minute. And, and she pulls them and the teacher's watching. And the teacher says to her, Ramona, I've told you several times to stop pulling Susan's curls. Do you think you could stop? And Ramona, being the sweet, honest girl she is, answers honestly, and she says, no, I don't think I can. And so the teacher says, well, then you'll have to go home and stay home until uh, you have decided that you're not going to pull Susan's curls anymore. And she winds up staying home for a few very, very painful days, you know, wondering what's going to happen to her and her parents are beside themselves and her sister's beside themselves. And I, I remember when I was a child reading this book, I was so worried about her. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I just was floored that, you know, she, she wasn't in kindergarten. And it, it was just, uh, I, I just remember it as, as being a very influential because of the emotional impact that that had on me at that time. How old were you when you first uh, uh, started reading this book in particular, but Ramona books in general? I'd say probably 10, 8, 10, around that age. But I'd have to credit this book as making me want to be a reader and a writer. I just loved it. And I still do. I, I mean, I reread it for this interview, and I just, I just love it even more now. Do you see a difference between uh, your reaction to Ramona when you were a kid first encountering these books and now reading as an adult? Absolutely. Now I understand why I like it so much. Back then I just loved it and I could never have put it into words why I liked it. But now now I understand. It's all it's all about the character. 
it's all about Ramona and how lovable she is. And, 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 and you're just so worried, you know, that she's going to get into more trouble, which of course she does. Now you touched upon uh, one very important relationship that we learn about uh, in this book. I mean, we learn about her family and the, the different classmates, but it's particularly her teacher, Miss Binney, and their relationship that becomes central to a lot of things that are going on with Ramona. And her perception of that relationship is probably a very different thing from Miss Binney's perception. We want to talk a little bit about what is it that how Ramona sees uh, Miss Binney and how they're connected, which, may, like I said, may be a very different way than uh, Miss Binney might have been, uh, seen um, their particular relationship. Sure. So Ramona desperately wants Miss Binney's approval, and she loves Miss Binney, and and she she just wants Miss Binney to think the world of her. Um, and what Ramona likes so much about Miss Binney is she doesn't seem like an adult. And and first, when she first sees her, she says she could she must not have been an adult for long because she doesn't look like one. Um, and and so she just everything Ramona does in the classroom is to get Miss Binney's approval. Yeah, and Miss Binney is not always quite aware of this, at least not at first. No, but I do think Miss Binney's aware at the end. I don't I don't know if you recall how it ends, where Ramona is home for days. And finally, Miss Binney sends a letter saying, you know, Ramona, when are you going to come back to school? And that's all Ramona needed to hear. Uh, you know, she she felt like she had Miss Binney's approval again and Miss Binney liked her again and she was ready. It's very interesting, Ramona. I mean, from the very beginning where she she mistakes a, a single word that Miss Binney said, um, I forget exactly the sentence involves uh, presence. And, uh, right. Sit, and Ram- here, sit here for the present. <laughs> That's it, for the present. <laughs> and Ramona thinks she means that she's going to get a present. And often right. often the, 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 the mistakes in the relationship have come down to a misunderstanding or something that in Ramona's mind becomes blown up into a very big thing. Right, which makes you love Ramona even more because she's never bad. She just misinterprets and doesn't understand because of her age. So she doesn't never purposefully get in trouble. It's always her misinterpreting or her enthusiasm or her outlook. But you still love her. Now, the title is Ramona the Pest. And I think you're saying, um, you know, that uh, certainly this is how she's described, um, I believe, by her sister and probably by um, other kids. Um, So is she a pest or is it just our expectations for kids that age that don't really always match who they are? I don't think she's a pest at all. Um, I, I, I can understand how other characters in the book saw her as a pest because she just had this bubbling enthusiasm and, and she did everything, uh, you know, full tilt. She, she was never shy, ne- never held back. Um, and, I think that came across as her being a pest, but in, in my mind, she was not a pest. I'm wondering uh, for kids, like you said, you start when you're reading this as thing, maybe thinking about reading this as your child uh, yourself. Do you think kids reading about characters like Ramona uh, like to read about them because they say themselves, I'm kind of like that, or I know someone like that, or are they thinking, boy, I'm sure I don't act like that? Uh, why do you think kids a- approach a character uh, when they're reading it, uh, uh, like Ramona? I do think kids see themselves 
in 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 her shoes because it and, and Ramona says it several times during the book. I don't know how things could have gone so wrong. Like when she is sitting for the present, she doesn't. She you know Miss Finney looks confused when Ramona won't leave. She if if you recall she stays in her chair because she wants that present. And then Miss Finney asks her to get up and she says, no, she can't. And then she looks at Miss Finney and she says, I don't know how things went so terribly wrong. She's just, she just innocently misunderstands that. And I think kids probably feel that way too. You know, um, they're not trying to be bad, but they're just, the world is misinterpreting them because of their age that, you know, they're acting their age and, and things happen. And so, so I do think kids can see themselves in these different situations. Well, I'm wondering then uh, for, for adults, particularly uh, parents and teachers, what they might gain from reading a, a book like this and maybe learning about and trying to understand better the Ramonas in their own life. I, I think Miss Binney is a role model for parents because she's so understanding to Ramona. She I, I mean, she's keeps Ramona in line for sure, but she tries so hard to see things from Ramona's point of view. Um, Ramona uh, draws her cues to look like little cats, and and Miss Binney does teach her the correct way to draw the cues, but also loves Ramona's spirit of you know writing the cues like a cat. So I I think. Parents and teachers should should look toward Miss Binney as a role model to really understand why the child is doing what they're doing. She she never tried to do anything bad, and Miss Binney always tried to see the good in Ramona, and I love that about her. I think when there's a substitute and Ramona tries to do the same things and she gets frustrated because the other adult doesn't quite see things the same way. Right. Yeah, actually, I wrote down this one quote when I when I was reading it. It made me laugh so much. She saw the substitute and she said, she was as old as a mother. Her dress was brown and sensible. So Ramona, you know, knew right away that that the substitute was an adult. And she didn't consider Miss Binney quite an adult because Miss Binney really understood. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, this book inspired you to both become a reader and then later a writer. And I'm just wondering, just thinking about Beverly Cleary as the author, the creator of this book, what is it that she does to bring Ramona to life, really this whole little world of Ramona's to life that other authors, other writers could learn from about what she does? Because it's, it's a very short book. It's a very simple book. But things are never quite as, as simple as they seem in a book like this. I think she drew a very realistic character that you can empathize with and sympathize with. And you could picture yourself in her shoes. Think, things just go wrong beyond her control. And, and like I said, it, it's usually, she's, she's never bad or mean. Um, and and I, I think like you, you sympathize and empathize with her. And, and you're right, the plot is very simple. Not much happens. She, she just goes to kindergarten and, and simple little things happen. But I think it, it's the great character that makes you want to keep reading and, and really draws you in emotionally. 
Yeah, she seems to have, and this is true for many of her books, um, an understanding of how kids think rather than sort of, you know, adult perception of kids, but really a, a good understanding of how kids think through things. Correct. Yes. Yes. Uh, is there a particular passage uh, from the book that you'd like to share? I would. So I love this passage. Um, okay, so this is the first day that it rained while Ramona's going to kindergarten, and Mrs. Quimby tells Ramona she needs to put on rain boots, which happen to be Howie's old brown boots. Ramona protests, and Mrs. Quimby asks Ramona to be sensible. So here's what Ramona has to say. I don't want to be sensible, said Ramona. I hate being sensible. Now Ramona, said her mother, and Ramona knew she was about to be reasoned with. You have a new raincoat. Boots cost money, and Howie's old boots are perfectly good. The soles are scarcely worn. The tops aren't shiny, Ramona told her mother, and they're brown boots. Brown boots are for boys. They keep your feet dry, said Mrs. Quimby, and that's what boots are for. Ramona realized she looked sulky, but she could not help herself. Only grown-ups would say boots were for keeping feet dry. Anyone in kindergarten knew that a girl should wear shiny red or white boots on the first rainy day, not to keep her feet dry, but to show off. That's what boots were for, showing off, wading, splashing, stamping. Now that's a girl with spirit, right? It's interesting that her 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 mother doesn't always quite understand uh, Ramona, but I believe later on the scene they go visit a shoe store, and I believe it's the 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 um, salesperson who sees right away um, what uh, I think from the expression on Ramona's face about what's really going on, uh, and is able to um, make things better. And and she does get the red boots, and then if if you recall, she. The, the boots sink in the mud. So uh, to just the first day she wears these shiny red boots, she she's she's always um, pushing the envelope. And so she steps in the mud. I, th- I think Henry Huggins is um, guarding her, which Henry's always unhappy when he has to guard Ramona because Ramona's always pushing the envelope and she'd always like put her little toe over the over the curb. And, and so she does that and she gets her boots stuck in the mud. I don't know if you remember that part. And, um, and, and she's afraid and it keeps raining and she's afraid that the uh, rain is going to ruin her boots and, and the boots that she just got um, are going to be ruined. But then Henry Huggins goes back and pulls them out of the mud for her. I think she gives him a kiss. <laughs> because the boots, yeah, like you said, the boots uh, for her. And I think Beverly clearly make this very clear, not just that they're important, but why they're so important to her. Correct. Yes, they're shiny. And like we heard, they're for wading, splashing, and showing off. Teresa, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk about your own book and to give me a chance to reread uh, Ramona and um, to talk to me today about her. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jody. It was my pleasure to speak about Ramona and my book. Thank you for inviting me. You can find Teresa's website at www.teresajulian.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. 
you can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.